So Hebrews is a book that is difficult to understand if you don't know anything about the Old Testament. So this is a little bit hard for us. There's going to be times as we go through the book of Hebrews, and today is one of those times when if you're not really familiar with the Old Testament, if you don't understand the references that he's talking about, you might go, what is he talking about? What is going on here? Let's not forget the context of the book. This author, the writer of Hebrews, is writing to believers in Jesus who are being persecuted by their fellow Jewish brethren for believing in Jesus. Therefore, they're tempted to walk away from Jesus. And in that temptation, the author is wanting to write to them uh, uh, this, this epistle, which he calls a short epistle, but is actually pretty long and very meaty. He's writing them this letter to encourage them that, look, all the things that you're tempted to go back to, going back to the old kind of Hebrew religion, the Old Testament ways, all those things you want to go back to, Jesus is better than those things. Don't go back to those things. And so when we get to chapter 4, he's talking about this idea of rest. In fact, in this chapter, eight times he mentions this idea of rest. And you can understand that this was a people who were in desperate need of rest. They're being persecuted. Their families, their sometimes parents, sometimes siblings, sometimes cousins, their whole social group was against them because they were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. And they were feeling that pressure. Imagine if you were part of, imagine this wasn't servant's church, but this was the local synagogue. And so you have these relationships with the people here and you've gotten to know people and if you, as you invest in people, you then come to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. But we as the synagogue wouldn't preach that Jesus is the Messiah. So at first there's a little bit of tension, but you're still worshiping Yahweh, you're still worshiping the God of the Bible, so it's not that big a deal, but the more that they under, you understand who Jesus is, He's not just the Messiah, but He's God the Son, that you realize that these people think, no, you're not worshiping Yahweh, you're worshiping some other God now, they say. And they push you out of the synagogues. They kick you out of the place where you would worship with your family, with your friends. Those relationships that used to be a sustaining factor in life were broken away. You can imagine how emotionally testing and trying that would be, how exhausting that would be. So this is a group of people that really need rest, but the irony is the only place they're going to find rest, the only source of rest is Jesus. And if they walk away from Jesus, they're going to forfeit the rest that he brings. And so what the author wants to do in chapter 4 is really exhort these guys that, look, Jesus provides a better rest. You can come to him. He's the one who will give you rest in the midst of this. And Jesus said this very thing, didn't he? Remember, in, I think it's in John chapter 16 where Jesus says, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world and I've written these things to you that you may have peace. So even though you're going to be in the midst of tribulation, you can still have peace. You can still find rest. And so he wants these people to understand this. Now, you may have noticed as we read through the verses this little phrase, let us, this exhortation. There's four times in this chapter where he says, let us. And really, we're going to look at two of those exhortations this week and two next week. 
And really what he wants to do in the very beginning of this chapter is he wants to help us, he wants to identify what God's rest is. We need to do that, especially these, those of us here who are Gentiles, those of us who are maybe not that familiar with the Old Testament. We need to know what God means by rest. What kind of rest is he talking about? Does he mean sipping a Mai Tai next to the beach somewhere? Is that kind of rest? Does he mean 12 hours of sleep? Does he mean what? Permanent retirement? What does he mean by rest? And so this is what we want to start off with. We want to identify what that rest is. So look at verse 1 where he writes, Therefore, since the promise remains of entering his rest, he's connecting to what he had said earlier in chapter 3, he says, Let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it, come short of that promise. For indeed, notice he says, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Who's the them? <laughs> Let's identify the them first and foremost. What the author here is talking about, he's talking about those group of people that he referred to at the end of chapter 3 who were wandering in the wilderness. You guys remember the Old Testament story of Exodus. We, we talked about this last week, right? Prince of Egypt stuff. God, God's people, the Israelites, they're in Egypt. They had gone into Egypt 400 years previous as 75 people, as hosts of Joseph, the, one of their own, who is now the prince of Egypt, right? Or I'm sorry, was the, uh, uh, was the sort of the, the, the leader of Egypt. You might say the prime minister of Egypt. And they had found shelter and they had found acceptance. But what happens after that Pharaoh who was there at that time dies? The next Pharaoh kind of comes along, doesn't know Joseph, and eventually, those Israelites, as they go from 75 to several million, what happens is they are turned into slaves. The, Egypt, the Egyptians turn on them and make them be slaves. Many of the pyramids, many of the things that we see in Egypt today were built on the backs of slaves. And so what happens is these Israelites, they're crying out to their God and saying, God, when are you going to rescue us from this? And eventually, as God had promised, and God had even told them it would be 400 years. God had promised he sends a deliverer. That deliverer is Moses. And Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt. And as they leave Egypt, they wander through the wilderness. It was a trip that was supposed to take just a few months, maybe a year, if they went the exact way God wanted them to go. But they take that trip, and instead of taking a year, they take 40 years. Why? Because when they get to the edge of the land that was promised to them, called Canaan, they don't have enough faith to enter in. They hear of the giants that live in that land, and they think there's no way we can defeat the, the giants. Even though God's delivered them from the most powerful nation on earth, they think there's no way we can defeat this one small nation called Canaan. And so instead of entering the land, they wander the wilderness for 40 years. Now, these are the them that the author is referring to in these first two verses. These people who wandered the wilderness for 40 years, he says of them, listen... They had the gospel preached to them. Now, this is kind of a bad translation, to be honest. It, it isn't really the gospel. It really should just say they had good news preached to them. It's not that these guys knew that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. That's not the idea. The idea is God made them a promise. Here's a promised land. That was good news for them. They had a good news proclaimed them, a good promise given to them. In the same way we have a good promise of eternal life through Jesus, they had that good promise. But what was the problem? They heard it, they understood it, but they didn't believe it. They didn't want to receive it. They didn't want to trust the God who gave it. And so when we're talking about rest, listen, we're talking about a message or a promise 
that has to be received. It's not just it has to be understood. It has to be received. We have to accept it. The Thessalonians were a church that, uh, that Paul went to, or the, a group of people that Paul went to. Thessaloniki is what it's called today. And when Paul went there to preach, here's what he said about them in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, notice, which also effectively works in you who believe. When Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, in Thessaloniki, we might say today, he says to them, listen, we are so thankful for you because when we preached to you God's word, you didn't say, oh, that's just what Paul thinks. You took it as it was, God's word. God has spoken. And because God has spoken, we're going to trust what he says. We're going to respond to what he says. And this is the thing we have to understand about the rest. The rest comes to us in the form of promise, in the form of truth. And it's a truth that has to be received. Think, think about it in the sense of, 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 of you can't just kind of, well, let, me, let me do this analogy, okay? Let's say I invite you to dinner. I say, look, I really want to get to know you better. We'd like you to have you come over for dinner. And so you come to our house and you see that our table is set out beautifully. And you're like, wow. And you ask about the plates and, wow, where'd you get these plates? And, oh, this is our finest china. We got it from our grandparents. And we ask about the Civil War. Yes, same thing. We got that from another set of grandparents. And, 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 and you go, what is that wonderful aroma? And we go, oh, that's the, the special recipe that we're making today. And, and so we'll, we'll be serving that. And for dessert, we're going to have this. And you go, wow, this is amazing. And you sit at the table and we serve the food and you just go, this is great. And we give thanks for the food. And as we all start to eat, you just look at it. Maybe occasionally you go, this does smell really good. You continue to talk about the dishes and ask about the recipes, but you never eat it. It does you no good, and I guarantee you, too, it does a, has a problem with our relationship because we're wondering, what's the deal? <laughs> Why don't you want to eat my food? This is kind of what the Hebrews did when they were wandering through the wilderness. God made this great promise for them. Look, me who delivered you from slavery is taking you into the promised land. It's time to eat. It's time to enter in. They wouldn't do it. So the, the, the thing we have to understand about the rest that God offers, it's always contained in His promises. It's contained in the truth that He gives us through His Word. So it's a message that we need to receive. But then He says this in verse 3. Notice He says, For we who have believed do enter that rest, as He has said. And then again, He's quoting Psalm 95, as we saw last week. He says, so I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Notice the difference between we and they. And so what he's wanting the Hebrews here to understand, he's saying, listen, yes, this is what they did, but that doesn't mean we have to do the same thing. He's wanting them to understand, listen, um, just because uh, they miss an opportunity doesn't mean we have to miss ours. We, do, we don't have to be like them. We can learn from their bad example. Then he says this phrase at the end of verse 3. He says, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, and you think, wait a second, what works were finished? What is he talking about? Okay, he says, we, we can't enter in, we don't have to be like them. But then he says this phrase, it seems like it doesn't even fit, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to explain what he means by this, and he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. Look at verse 4. For he has spoken in a certain place, that's Genesis 2 2, 
of the seventh day this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, and he quotes again, Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. He's equating what God says about the seventh day, seventh day of creation, his rest. He equates his rest with what David says in Psalm 95 of, uh, I'm sorry, his works with what David says in Psalm 95 of my rest. He's making that connection. Now, this is important. Because what the author of Hebrews here is trying to get across is, he's trying to say, look, there's all these different sort of, you might say, examples when God gave his people rest. He gave them a promise of rest if they would follow him out of Egypt. He delivered them out of Egypt. He gives them that promise of rest, but they don't enter in. But then there's also this idea of, but you can also look back into the the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And the seventh day, what does he say? God stops. He completed his work. So what does he do? He rests. And of course, to a Jewish mindset, they would know, oh yeah, we know the seventh day because our Sabbath, our day of rest, our day of ceasing is the seventh day from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. And that is the day that we remember what God has done and given us all that we need. Therefore, we don't work. We don't have to work seven days a week. We can work six and trust that, trust that God says that's enough and he'll provide for us in those days. And so they understood that this rest was this idea of God's provision. God has already provided all that's needed. Again, this helps us identify what his rest is. What does he mean by rest? It's not only a... Um, a message we need to receive, but also, listen, it's a work that's already finished. It's already finished. Now, it's interesting because this work that's already finished, okay, he, it's, a, it's not an idea that God, as we sang today, God's still working. <laughs> it's not that God's not working anymore. It's that in, from God's perspective, everything's already done. It's complete. In, 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 the, in the mindset of our sovereign God who's beyond space and time, time is complete. It's already done. And so he can talk about it's finished and mean just that it's finished, even though from our perspective, we're still waiting for it to come to completion. You following me? Now, this is important because when we're talking about this rest. We're talking about, listen, that which the work is already, that's already been finished, but here's what we have to understand, okay? A finished work doesn't automatically equal an experienced rest. So think about it even practically. That practically, we would understand how this would work as a concept, right? You, you could be told, okay, it's going to be a hard day at work today. We really got to crack down and get these projects done. So we're asking you maybe kind of push aside your break if you can or take a shorter lunch. Let's just kind of get in there and get it done. Let's go for that eight hours straight and let's just get it done. And you work that eight hours straight and you finish that project, but you're still exhausted. You haven't entered into that rest yet. So the work's done, but the rest hasn't come. You're still kind of waiting for that rest to come. And what you can also do in those situations, which I have done practically, is you've had those kinds of days, and then you think, okay, I've finished this work, but what do you do? I've got other work I want to get done. And so you jump on a new project instead of resting. Now, I'm, I'm giving this because here's what the Hebrews are actually doing. They, they don't want to deny Jesus, but they're keeping their faith quiet, trying to kind of ease back into this Hebrew style of worship because they want the persecution to stop. So in a sense, what they're doing is, even though the work's been completed, 
They're adding more works to themselves. And therefore, they're never entering into rest. Even though the work's been completed. But there's something more to this that we have to understand, okay? Look at verse 6. He says, Since therefore it remains that some must enter in. In other words, there are still people who haven't entered this kind of rest that comes to Jesus. And, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter in because of disobedience. Literally, that's disbelief for that obstinate, rebellious unbelief that we talked about last week. Again, he designates a certain day saying, in David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, and then again he quotes Psalm 95, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now the point he's trying to make here, and he says it very clearly in, in verse 9, he, he says, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. In other words, this rest isn't just a message or a promise that we receive, and it's not just a finished work uh, or work that's already finished. It's also, listen, an eternal reality. That this, this rest he's talking about is something that we're waiting for in the future, yet it's something that we can experience right now. And we've talked about this before, haven't we? This idea of, when we talk about the kingdom of God, of the already but the not yet, and how we kind of live in that tension of we're already in the kingdom, but yet the kingdom is not yet in its fullness until Jesus comes back. And so there's this reality that he's kind of hinting at this and saying, listen, this rest is this eternal reality. Yet notice, in quoting Psalm 95 and stressing this word today, he's saying that this reality, this eternal reality, listen, it requires an immediate response. Again, I know I'm repeating a little bit from last week, but this is important for us to remember on a daily basis. What's the day of salvation? Today's a day of salvation. When does God want us to turn to Him? Now God wants us to turn to Him. When does God want us to trust Him? Right now He wants us to trust Him. Today. He calls us to an immediate response. God doesn't just want us to believe. Jesus doesn't just call us to believe that, yes, Jesus, you're Lord, and someday I'll be under your reign. No, he, Jesus, you're Lord, so now I'm under your reign, and it's good to be under your reign. It's good to have you rule over my life. Today is a day of salvation. So this is what he's talking about, his rest. And, and I want you guys to listen to how the book of Revelation describes what that rest is going to look like. What's it going to be like when we finally enter into that heavenly rest? Check this out. Revelation chapter 21, great verses. Listen to this. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give, notice, I will give the fountain of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son or my child. Do you understand what this is? This, in this picture of heaven, of what heaven's going to be like, what the kingdom's going to be like, there's also connected to it this immediate offer. Hey, are you thirsty for this? Ask now. <laughs> Ask now. And, and I'll give you what you need. Ask now. And live with me as my child. This is the rest that God's offering us. We, we need to identify this. We need to understand this. 
that we're not just talking about pie in the sky, by and by, that one day everything is going to be wonderful. It is way better than we experience now. Hey, one of, the, one of the part of the good news for us as Jesus followers is this place is the closest thing to hell we get to. That's great news. And, and here's the, the great news. Part of the great news is even though that's the case, here's the reality. Even now, God calls us to be those who are drinking in the living water, the work of God's Spirit to change us and make us like Jesus. Even now. Even now, we enter into His rest. We do enter into His rest. How? By faith. See, this is not just about believe that one day your sins are forgiven, therefore you're going to go to heaven. This is about believe that God the Son has made you able to be filled with God the Spirit so you can walk with Him and you can be confident that you're going to see God the Father face to face one day. He wants us to believe this. He wants these guys to enter into that rest. Now, This is not just an encouragement to these guys. It is obviously in the context a sobering exhortation. He wants them to really understand the seriousness of missing out. That's why he starts off in verse 1 by saying, hey, let's fear, let us fear. This is serious stuff. We don't want to miss out on what God's called us to. So he says this in verse 11. Notice, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. In other words, let's not be like those Israelites of old. Let's not be like that generation of Israel who refused to enter into the promised land. Let's not be like them. Now, do you guys see any kind of irony here? Be diligent to enter into rest. Do you guys see that? Isn't that interesting? Okay, which is it? Is it rest or is it diligence that God wants? You know, how does that work? Well, Here's what we have to understand. The reason he's talking about being diligent is because the thing that we will, will, are least likely to work for is, is learning to rest in God. It's funny. We will work to try to please God. We will work to try to get God on our side. We will work to try to get God in our debt. But we won't work to just learn to say, God, I just want to rest in you. You've already done it. I'm your child. I can't add to that. I can't take away from it. Don't be mistaken, it takes work. Any of you guys that are in any kind of uh, long-term relationship, even if, if that's only with your parents, you know that it takes work to trust. Trust is a process, and it takes work. You learn to trust. But the more you learn to trust, the more you experience what? Rest in that relationship. Confidence in that relationship. This is what he's talking about. Now, here's the thing we have to recognize. We can resist that rest. We have to get it through our heads, people, that how we are naturally, who we are left to ourselves, without God's intervention, we push Him away. We, in our pride, want to go, I don't need you to provide rest for me. I'll provide my own rest. Thank you very much. I can plan my own holidays. I can earn my own way. I don't need you to do this for me. This is how we are naturally, unless God intervenes. Therefore, we need to heed what he said in verse 1. We need to fear. There there needs to be a healthy sobriety about the fact that we have this nature that doesn't want to just receive grace. It wants to try to earn it somehow, which is a contradiction in terms. You can't earn grace. This is what we want to do. 
And this is why the author is saying, no, 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 be diligent, man. Think about the, the consequence of trying to do that. You're going to end up just like the children of Israel, never entering in. That's what's going to happen. He says, don't do it. This is why Paul says this in, in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, if you have, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now this fear and trembling, this is not a, a debilitating fear that he's talking about. He's not talking about like, oh, I'm scared, I, can't, I don't want to try anything. It might, it might go wrong, oh, I, I can't do it. It's not that kind of fear. Paul talked about going to the Corinthian church with the gospel in fear and trembling. It has to do with a, a, a sobriety, a humility that you know you don't have what it takes to actually make happen what God wants. That's what he means by fear and trembling. You recognize, man, I don't have what it takes to do what God wants. In Paul's case to the Corinthians, it was, I don't have what it takes to go there and preach the gospel. I can't do this, God, on my own. So I go in fear and trembling. What happens? God pours out his spirit and saves many people. And our salvation is like that. God, I don't have what it takes to, to, I don't have what it takes to save myself. I don't have what it takes what it takes to obey you. I can't do this. But why do we move forward in, in it? Because it's God who's working in us to will and to do. Do you understand? This is what we need to be diligent in. God, I'm going to, I'm going to move forward because I know that if I have any desire to move forward, it's because you've worked in my heart. Now, let me be clear about this, because I think one of the things that the enemy can condemn us with is this whole issue of, of our desires or our affections. I think sometimes we, I don't know if it's because we've heard testimonies or because of maybe the way we present ourselves sometimes, but sometimes we get this mindset that, you know, we're going to be the kind of people, if we're really Christians, you know, we're going to just always just be wanting God. I just want Jesus. I don't want anything else. And there's never going to be any competition for our affections. That's naive. It's completely naive about how wicked we actually are. We want all kinds of things besides Jesus. This is why it's such a miracle when we actually want Jesus. Because we usually want anything but Jesus, but when we start wanting Jesus, guess what that means? God is working in us to will. All right, God, You've got to be working in me because I do want Jesus even though I want all this other rubbish. I really want Jesus and I want to want Jesus more than I want anything else. So God, if you're working me to will, I've got to believe that you can work in me to do. So I want to be diligent to enter in that rest. I want to learn to rest in what you've already completed for me. That's what I want to do. See, realizing our need for rest, part of that is recognizing that we want to resist that rest. And we need God's intervention. And the good news is God's intervening. If, if God wasn't intervening, guys, you wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't. You didn't come here because it's such a nice building or you wanted to hear me speak or you wanted to hear the, the, the band play or the coffee's really good. That's not why you came. That might have been the reasons you told yourself, get out of bed and go, you know. But you came because God is working in you. Hallelujah. Praise God, he's working in you. That's why you came. So with humility, with fear and trembling, be diligent to rest in Him. Rest in what He's done. Now He goes on to say this in verse 12. He says, For 
The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And notice he says about the Word of God, it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, we're not going to talk about the difference between soul and spirit and what that might possibly mean because that's not the point here. The point here is very simple. All he's talking about here is that the Word of God isn't just a book that we kind of hold on to the surface, that we kind of have an intellectual understanding of. It's a living book. It's an active book. It's the book of God's Spirit. And He, this, the person of God, God's Spirit, He takes His book and He performs surgery in the innermost part of our being. He cuts us wide open and exposes us. That's what He does. And this is the thing, we need to understand this, okay? We need to have our hearts exposed. That's what we need. Now, some of you who've been coming to servants for a while, you might think, man, John, you're always kind of telling us how bad we are. You're always highlighting that part of Scripture. Why? Because we always forget. We always think that we're better than we are. And because we think we're better than we are, you know who we trust? ourselves. So you know what we need exposed? That sin. We need to be cut open and see, oh yeah, actually, I'm not good, am I? I actually don't do good, do I? I actually don't want to trust God, do I? No. But God wants you to, and God's working in you so that you will. This is what the Word of God does. This is a great thing, too, because it's not just exposing. God doesn't just want to cut you open. He's a good surgeon. A good surgeon doesn't kind of go, look at that. There's a bit of cancer in there. Too bad for him. So, so, so. He doesn't do that. He cuts open so he can cut out. And he cuts out so he can sew clean. And so there can be healing. And this is what God does with his word. Listen to this. Check this out. This is what the psalmist says. In Psalm 107, this is how the word of God comes for healing. Listen, he says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, speaking of God's people, the Israelites, and he saved them out of their distresses. Notice, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. This is what God wants to do. He doesn't want to just expose. He wants to heal with his word. The way we find rest is to be exposed to God's word so we can be exposed by God's word so that God can cut us open and heal. And it's not just for healing. Listen, it's for our sustenance. We need it more than our daily food. Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Interesting, too, the way Jesus says this. He's not just talking about the idea of memorizing Scripture, though obviously he memorized that verse from Deuteronomy that he just quoted. So if Jesus memorized Scripture, I think it's a good idea if we memorize Scripture. But he's talking about knowing God's Word well enough so that when God speaks, He's speaking to you and you recognize it. It's not just reading words on a page. You have to do that. If you don't do that, you won't hear from God. But it's reading words on a page so that God's Spirit can speak to you. He can apply that Word right to you and say, this is what you need to hear today. But it's not just for sustenance. Listen, It's for growth. Peter says this, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So we expose ourselves to Scripture. Why? Because we really need His rest and we're not going to find His rest unless He exposes us, unless He heals us, unless He sustains us, and unless He grows us. And He wants to do that through His word. 
He wants to use his word to bring that about. Now lastly, he says in verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, I don't know about you, but that verse is scary. Because if, if he says that the word of God pierces our hearts and shows us not just what our thoughts are, but discerns what the intents of our thoughts are. So that God knows our motives. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a hard time knowing what my motives are. Most of the time I'm, I realize now, the older I get, that my motives are mixed. Like I wish I could say that everything I do for people is out of love for them, but a lot of times it's for my own ego, it's, for, it's, it's because I'm afraid what they think if I don't do it, or whatever the case might be. But the Word of God exposes that. And I don't know about you, but it's a scary thing to think about that we serve a God who knows every single thing that we do and think and want, and He knows why. I know it's been said before a gazillion times, but it never uses, loses its potency. Can you imagine if your whole thought life was on this screen right now? Wow. This is why it's silent. How humiliating. If any one of us had all our thought life there, all the thoughts that we have, all the desires that we have, all the motives that we have, we would just run out of this room crying, ashamed, humiliated. And so I don't know about you, but this reality that, that there's a God in heaven, this, the creator of the universe, who is even with us now, there's nothing that's hidden from him. There's no creatures hidden from him. He sees everything. That's scary. And there's a real sense that this is meant to be scary. It's meant to be sobering. There's something about us recognizing that God sees us as we are that really does humble us. And it causes us to hopefully, if we think about that, if we're conscious of that fact, it makes us sober and slow to judge others. In fact, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 14. When he writes this, he says, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. This should make us radically patient with each other as we're in process. As we are tempted to walk away from Jesus, we should be, we should be patient with each other because guess what? We're all at one time during the day tempted to walk away from Jesus and probably most of the time we, we give in to it. God sees what we're like. We can't hide from God. And this is meant to sober us. It's meant to, us to think about, hey, what's going on? In fact, I, I can imagine the author of Hebrews, whoever he is, we don't know, that when he writes this, he's thinking, guys, I'm in the same boat you are. In fact, the way he, his knowledge of the Old Testament, there's a really good indication that whoever he is, that he's a Jew who became a Christian. 
So he's understanding the same persecution and he's feeling the same temptation, but he's going, don't you realize God sees that? And this is meant to sober them, but also, listen, it's meant to encourage them. Because, guess, because you can't hide from God, you know what that means? Stop doing it. You can't hide from God, so why try? You can't hide from God, so why are you doing that? We do that. We try to hide from God. We try to hide from God, not just by, you know, trying not to go to church, but trying to ignore that God sees us, ignore that God's there, ignore that the things that are in our hearts. We try to hide from God by covering ourselves up with good works. And this is why we get self-righteous towards one another. Oh, brother, you should trust the Lord. If you would just trust the Lord and get in the Word a bit more. You know, I've been in the Word pretty faithfully for the last 45 years, and I'd just like to say, if you would do the same thing, then everything would go wonderfully. What are we doing? We're hiding. Trying to hide from God, trying to hide from the brethren, and it doesn't work. Now, we can be open for uh, look, look at this. We're going to close with this section of Psalm 139. I'm going to read to you the section from the New Living Translation because I like the way it, it paraphrases this. Psalm 139, David writes, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. Guys, listen, I'm saying this to you as an encouragement because I believe that this is one of the reasons why the author of Hebrews writes this verse to these people. Listen, he knows that they are tempted to be in this place. And can you imagine these believers, these Hebrew believers being persecuted and so they either deny Jesus or say, well, we're not really sure about if he was anything more than just a rabbi. We're not sure if he was who these other people say he was. You know, we're kind of confused. So we just want to worship God. So we're coming back to the synagogue and as people are going, oh, good, that's a good choice, brother. You come here and here's where you're going to learn the truth, brother. You stay here with us. And as they're there and they're singing their songs in synagogue and they're hearing the Bible taught in synagogue, can you imagine them sitting there going, oh, this is not Jesus. This is, this, all the scripture they're reading points to Jesus and yet they deny Jesus. This is not where I'm supposed to be. They're trying to hide in their old religion and God won't let them hide. And the author is trying to say, don't you get it? It's time to stop hiding. It's time to stop hiding. Jesus provides a better rest. Listen, you, you might be in a place today where you're thinking, you know, Okay, I'll try not to hide on a Sunday morning, but you don't understand what it's like in my home. If I follow Jesus in my home, my spouse, my kids, my parents, they, they disown me, they disrespect me, they don't want anything to do with me. But don't you know you can't hide from God? And He's not going to forsake you. He chases you down in that place. All you're doing 
is wandering in the wilderness when you do that. That's all you're doing. You know you can't go back to Egypt. So you're just wandering in the wilderness. That's all you're doing. If you are saying to me, okay, John, you're right, at home I need to be clear that I'm going to follow Jesus. I want to enter into the rest that he has for me when I'm at home and when I'm at church, but you don't understand when I'm at work. (laughs) Hey, it's really hard at work. I can't say that I'm a Christian. If I get caught reading my Bible on my lunch hour, everyone's going to mock me. If I say to one of my work colleagues who's sharing about their problem that I'll pray for them, they'll get offended. And you hide. Don't you know God's saying, listen, all you're doing is wandering in the wilderness. If you're in a place where you're thinking, okay, John, you don't know how bad I've been. I've been wandering for 39 years in the wilderness. There's no way I can enter in now. Guys, do you realize that the book of Deuteronomy, which Jesus quoted there when he says, a man cannot live by, uh, by uh, bread alone, but by every word out of the, that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But the book of Deuteronomy was written or spoken through Moses right before they were to enter in. As if God's saying, listen, you've been wandering forever. Stop it. Just enter in. God wants us to enter into his rest. God wants us to find rest for our souls. What do we just read in verse 10? He who enters his rest ceased from his works as God has ceased from his. Does that mean there's no such thing as good works anymore for a Christian? Of course not. If you go to church camp, we encourage you to go to church camp, at least come out for the day. We're going to talk about doing good. The whole theme of the camp is doing good. Good works are really important. But guess what? Good works don't get you right with God. You're only right with God because of what Jesus provides. And you're so right with God by what Jesus provides, you don't have to add anything to it. You can't add anything to it. So stop hiding in good works. Stop hiding in religious platitudes and just come to Him. Come to Him. He wants you to have rest. You say, yeah, but John, I keep messing up over and over and over and over again. He's provided for that. (laughs) We're going to talk about that next week in detail. He's provided for that. Enter into your rest. Father, I pray that you would help us today to enter into the rest that you have for us. Lord, it's a beautiful day and many of us are going to go have a nice meal or barbecue or lay in the sun and we just even right now want to give you thanks for those good gifts. But Lord, help us not to think that that's the ultimate rest. Lord, you said, let all those who are weary and heavy laden come to you and you will give us rest. You said for us to take your yoke upon us, that your yoke is easy, that your burden is is light, and we will find rest for our souls. Father, I pray for anyone here who's not finding that rest, that today they'd enter in. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if there's anyone here today that hasn't believed, oh, you've heard of Jesus, you've heard what he's done by dying on the cross for you, You've heard that that pays for your sins. You've heard he's risen from the dead. You understand that conceptually, but you have not applied that to your own life. You have not partaken. You have not consumed.
you have not eaten the beautiful table he's prepared for you. If you haven't fed on Jesus today, feed on him. Find your rest today. If you're saying, I want that, I don't know how to do that. Listen, the Bible says, if we believe in, in our hearts and that the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus and confess with our mouth that God had risen from, rose from the dead, we shall be saved. The Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will not be ashamed. If you call out to God, if you say, God, save me. God, forgive me. God, I want the rest you offer. He'll give it to you. He's that good. Just ask him.